0: Join us as we explore the exciting past of the grand state of Texas from the archives of the Texas Collection. Host Robert Darden talks with Texas history writers. You'll hear dramatic and often little-known Texas tales. This is Treasures of the Texas Collection.
1: Hi. I'm your host, Robert Darden, and welcome to Treasures of the Texas Collection. We're talking high school football with Brad Owens, who also teaches journalism here at Baylor with me. Brad, you covered high school football for what, 15 years?
0: About that, I covered football out of my hip pocket while I was a young newspaper reporter and city editor. At one point, I was the Preachers, Teachers, Creatures, and Bleachers editor at my newspaper. <laughs> um, so I saw football both as a lover of the games, as I've been since 1969, and from a news perspective. I worked in Bryan College Station at that time and for several years during the Jackie Sherrill era at Texas A&M. So we covered high school recruiting and the drama behind it, which was plentiful, especially in Cheryl's I'm program. And uh, after that, sort of in transition toward grad school, I spent a year in sports at the Austin American Statesman, mostly covering high school ball. Uh, And I covered uh, broadcast football and baseball games on a little radio station in Central Texas for a little over 10 years. I've done about 300 football and baseball games. So I've spent a lot of years navigating my way to cover games by looking for the glow of the stadium lights. You never ask for directions. You know, just find the lights and figure out a way to get there probably eating more wonderful chicken fried steaks and stadium nachos before games than anybody I know. So when you sent me over to the Texas Collection to do a treasure segment on the high school game, I was fired up. Brad,
1: did you have your game face on?
0: Had on my game face. There are so many fascinating dimensions to this sport. And Texas Collection seems to have as much of that as anybody, anywhere would have. Uh, The Texas Collection has a full archive of Texas Football Magazine, founded by the legendary Dave Campbell. He started the magazine in 1960, working at his kitchen table here in Waco. And, you know, those issues of Texas football tell the story of Texas during my lifetime and yours, not just the story of Texas football. I've always enjoyed reading and writing about sports and Mm -hmm. sports and Many, many topics. If you want to write about money, if you want to write about race, if you want to write about big moral questions, sports gives you access. There's a scoreboard, there's a sense that it ought to be fair. People are interested, there's at least some level of transparency. Um, Bob, you know, you and I have grown up with this game, and I'm sure most of the people listening have as well. But what would you say if I told you that in our grandfather's day, high school football was bigger? meaner, more brutal, more out of control than we've ever seen it.
1: I guess I'd say bring it on, big guy.
0: All right. Let's just jump right in. Jim Dent, longtime Dallas writer, uh, maybe our best football historian in the state of Texas. He is the author of The Junction Boys, the story of the Aggie team that Bear Bryant whipped into shape one summer in Junction, Texas. We all know that story it was made into a movie. A couple of years later, Dent wrote the story of the University of Oklahoma dynasty of the 40s and 50s in The Undefeated. Um, Dent covered the Cowboys, the Dallas Cowboys from Landry and Staubach all the way through Jimmy Johnson and Troy Aikman. But in this book in the Texas collection called 12 Mighty Orphans, which I found on campus, Dent went all the way back to the 20s and 30s when Texas high school football first became a national story and an obsession in the state of Texas. Now, this is how Jim Dent described that period in the state. He wrote, In the oil belt, the roughnecks, speculators, wildcatters, and tool pushers had money to wager and an insatiable appetite for winning. (laughs) Now, we know about the heavyweight prize fighters during the roaring 20s. We know the story of Babe Ruth and the New York Yankees dynasty of that era. But at that time, high school football, especially down here, was just as hot. Mm -hmm. Texas loved its Wild West reputation. Remember, this is the dawn of the Western movie, Western dime novel. Mm -hmm. There were still old timers around here then with personal memories of the Red River War of 1874 between the Comanches and the U.S. Army. Right here, right where we are now was a place where the Comanches and other Plains Indians had defeated a European army, the Spanish, on the field of battle and run them off the field out of the country into Mexico. Texas was a hard country and Texans in the 20s and 30s were very proud of it. All right. I don't want to
1: get too psychological here. But the people who see football as a ritual, a, a less dangerous substitute warfare, so maybe they're on to something? I think so
0: uh texas was a warring place there was very little let up conflict was part of our dna really was as dent says the oil patch had become the new west the football crowds high school and college crowds there was something to see they're lubricated with bootleg whiskey motivated by the gambling commitments Some of the players at the high school level had heavy beard stubble and bald spots. And there was a lot of talk of grown men being recruited off the oil crews to play for the high schools. No. It was fairly commonplace for a talented player's father to get a plush job offer from an employer in a rival school district. And the game on the field was 11-on-11 bloody nose-to-nose at the line of scrimmage. Mm. Fans followed their teams by the newspaper. They packed the stadiums. They were just beginning to enjoy hearing football on the radio. You re- have to remember, there wasn't really all that much in the way of entertainment options back then. Uh, the National Football League was this iffy little startup proposition with the teams only in a few cities in the East and the Midwest. There wasn't any Major League Baseball west of St. Louis. And there was no jumping and very little excitement in basketball.
1: All right. So that leaves high school football.
0: Yes. Picture this. Uh, an image really happened. There's a passenger, a passenger train heading south from Fort Worth to Corsicana, loaded with football fans. One of those fans who's working his way through the car, shaking hands, politicking the crowd, is Eamon Carter the millionaire publisher of the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. Carter is a personal friend of Franklin Roosevelt, movie star Gary Cooper, flyer Charles Lindbergh. It was Carter himself who coined the phrase, Fort Worth is where the West begins. And Eamon Carter is a big fan of the Fort Worth Masonic home Mighty Mites and their brilliant coach, Rusty Russell. Carter... On that train, he's one of thousands of people who follow their favorite teams through the high school playoffs, traveling either by train or by Model T Ford or in shiny Packards the size of Ocean Liners that had to go around the Waco circle in segments. (laughs) And on this particular football train, Carter is working up and down the cars, meeting people, looking for some action. Somebody willing to take Corsicana against the Mighty Mites in the 1932 Class A championship game. If he's going to get people to bet with him, he's going to have to give 14 points, which was a huge point spread in the days of single-wing offense, 6-2 defense, sure. very few points. He finds a few takers. Ultimately, the game ends in a scoreless tie. Of course, Akana and Masonic Homer crowned co-champions. Amon Carter has to pay up. Jim Dent describes one Masonic home player, Hardy Brown Jr., the son of a murdered bootlegger from Childers. <laughs> as, quote, still considered by many to be the meanest man ever to play football. Brown graduated from Masonic home to the U.S. Marine Corps, jumped out of airplanes in the South Pacific during World War II, later played for the Redskins and Colts and 49ers in the NFL. And that Masonic home team is one of the early legends of Texas high school football. The Texas collection has a wonderful store of materials on the great coaches and teams, and those teams include Waco High School in the 20s as well as Moxonic Home in the 30s and 40s and many others.
1: Now, it seems to me that a lot of those teams, for whatever reason, did come from those West Texas oil fields.
0: Yeah, there's a book in the Texas Collection published by the Odessa American newspaper which showcases that paper's football coverage over the years. The book chronicles what they call the Little Southwest Conference. Now, that was the West Texas school district, or, or district, UIL district, classified most years as District 5-4-A. Now, Bob, when you and I were growing up in the 60s and 70s, that district dominated football, and it seemed to stock the talent for every good college team in the Southwest Conference and half of the Big Eight. I remember. That one district included the Midland, Odessa, Abilene, and San Angelo schools, and that one district produced a state champion just about every five years. And we have to remember that that was in an era when only one team from a district even got to go to the playoffs. And out there in, that, in, in District 5 4 a, there were years when the second-best team in the state would stay home in December with one loss. Ah, go Mojo. Yeah.
1: Starting about that time, now the game begins to get a lot more wide open, though. A lot of people say maybe maybe too much wide open with the spread offense.
0: Yeah, there is, I think there's definitely an ebb and flow to how the game is played. But high school football has to be considered more civilized today, a little bit more humane, and I think that is for the best. The violence was not show violence. The violence was real. As for the game that birthed the Texas high school football legend in the 20s, that was a brutal sport. Probably the best way to describe it was that all of football then was played like goal line football is played now, minus the bootlegs and spread formations. The teams just pounded on each other. Defenses would set six down linemen mm-hmm. with two linebackers. Offenses ran a single wing. With a, the center would make a little short snap, shotgun snap directly to a ball carrier. And it was all about the one-on-one on bat, one on one battles up front, low blocking, tackling, and just sheer toughness. And that was the heart of the game, and that's what people liked about it. It was a violent game. As Jim Dent observed, it fit the way the fans wanted to see themselves in Texas in that era, the way that Texas was being depicted in novels and movies. It was an ideal spectator sport. Plus, with offense in short supply, a lot of games were decided by only a couple of points. Gamblers like tight games.
1: They do. But it was a coach at Waco High, of all
0: places, who helped change all that. Paul Tyson may have changed the game of football at every level as much as George Mikan or Wilt Chamberlain changed basketball. He added a dimension. He added verticality to the game. And it was a cultural change. It was a different way to think about football. Um, The legendary coach, Gordon Wood, who is remembered for his great teams at Brownwood, once said, quote, the things that Coach Tyson's teams did were unreal. I never met him, but I heard about him all my life. Paul Tyson was a teacher. He was a technician. He was a soft-spoken but relentless competitive personality. As I read these news clips in the Texas Collection and these other materials about him, he reminded me of everything I've seen uh, as I've learned about John Wooden or Tom Landry. Tyson's folks had been well off, and he attended TCU while it was still located here in Waco. His parents wanted him to be a, a doctor. He was a great three-sport athlete, could have played Major League Baseball. But to satisfy his parents, he studied biology, and he wound up teaching high school science in Tyler. And he got drafted there to coach their football team. After a couple years in Tyler and at Denison, he came home to Waco, and he coached his first team here in 1913. And with Tyson, there were no histrionics, no throwing chairs, no... Um, eating worms, no props. He didn't curse his players, but he understood football. And there were people who said he understood football better than anyone in America in the mid-1920s, and he could teach it. Waco High School put up some amazing numbers. In 1921, that team outscored their opponents 526-0. to The games, even though they weren't competitive, were huge events. Stadiums were sold out, road and home. The Tigers beat Mejia 136 to nothing in the 1921 season opener. You won't see any scores like that on your Friday Night Highlight shows, I don't think. But Waco High at that time in 1921 was not in the University of League yet and couldn't compete for a state championship. The Tigers won their first title the next year.
1: Well, thank goodness is all I can say that the story of those teams was recorded while a lot of the players are still around.
0: Still around and still very influenced by what they had experienced at 15, 16 years old. Our friend Keith Randall wrote a great piece on Tyson's teams for the Waco Tribune Herald at the time of a player reunion in 1980. Uh, John Werner, another good friend of ours uh, of the Trib, did a nice piece in 1999 on the greatest Central Texas teams ever. And there's this intriguing book in the Baylor collection called Pigskin Pulpit by Ty Cashin. The subtitle is A Social History of Texas High School mm-hmm. Football Coaches. Uh, it's a fascinating subject sure. and it's a great treatment. A little academic, but it gets you someplace with his his uh, what he has to say about the sport as part of, of who we are. The Texas collection has an extensive file of news clippings on Tyson and a digitized oral history interview with his sister, Ambeline Mahaffey Tyson. Now that is a name to be reckoned with. Ambeline Mahaffey Tyson. (laughs) Now Bubba Nash, a player on those teams of Tyson, said his coach, quote, lived football 24 hours a day. But that's not entirely true. Uh, Coach Tyson would take players to the elite, elite cafe to eat. He played piano. He taught Sunday school. He had this big Packard that Nash said always seemed to be full of students. He liked cooking for his players, but he'd steal their French fries. Cashin, in this book, Pigskin Pulpit, points out a key asset that Tyson had with the Waco High Tigers. He actually had assistant coaches. Hmm. Uh, When the the administration uh, in the school district realized what they had with Tyson, they allowed him a little staff. And he took a great advantage of that edge. He had a system for scouting opponents. that The scouts didn't just look for physical weakness, but he for defensive sets and players that could be set up by certain of Tyson's deception plays. Mm-hmm. In an interview with John Werner, Frank Pilati, who played for Tyson at Waco High from 1938 to 39, described his coach this way, 60 years after Pilati had graduated, quote, Mr. Tyson's coaching was complicated, but it worked beautifully once you understood it. Every play had to be exact. He'd stand there with a stopwatch and make sure every play was run perfectly. We were doing things like trapping and cross-blocking way back then. The success of our offense depended on speed, aggressiveness, and precise blocking. Quote continues, I remember Coach Tyson writing notes to players, describing how to do different plays and why you did them that way. He was so thorough. He had such dedication to his players and the game. In the Texas collection, Bob, there's a clipping dated 1923 that reported that Tyson was taking the train north to study football that summer with Amos Alonzo Stagg at the University of Chicago. High school, was the, high school football was the hottest game in the state. Paul Tyson was a rock star. His friends and colleagues and admirers around the country included Amos Alonzo Stagg, Pop Warner, DX Bible, Frank Leahy, Newt Rockney. Rockney and other college coaches would correspond with Tyson and ask him to critique plays and game plans for them.
1: My goodness, that's a Hall of Fame. Okay, now explain this to me. What exactly did
0: he run, and why is this so revolutionary in the 1920s? The centerpiece, the centerpiece of the offense was something called the spinner play. As Mr. Pallotti told John Werner, it depended on precisely timed angle blocking and influencing the defense.
1: Okay, so this was still running football, not a lot of forward passing, I That's
0: guess. right. That's right. For one thing, the shape of the ball. Uh, it was sophisticated running offense. Okay. Tyson's teams would run out of the single wing formation, and they also ran a kind of a wide wishbone mm-hmm. formation. He didn't have a lot of great big guys, even by the standards of that era. In fact, players said a 190-pound lineman was a huge, Hmm. was a giant in those days. So he developed a system based on quickness and deception. In fact, what I'm saying is Waco High was outsized by a lot of the teams they played while they were beating teams 126 to (laughs) nothing. He ran this set of counterplays with the ball starting one direction and then switching back a different way. The backs would cross paths, would run an X before the ball got to them. The back's motion was designed to manipulate the defense's aggressiveness to get the defenders to run themselves out of the play. The lineman trap blocked. They'd step back and then hit a guy and push him the way he was already going to take advantage of that same lateral motion by the defense. The third element, which was used very effectively decades later by Joe Gibbs with the Washington Redskins, and you still see it in NFL football today, is that the ball carriers didn't run a straight line. They looked for cutback lanes. They expected to run in a kind of an L or V shape into a space that would open after the play started.
1: OK. Now, the way that you're explaining this to me,
0: that's all standard in today's good running games. That's right. But in 1920, it looked like science fiction. <laughs> it looked crazy. And it was completely unstoppable. Sure. The Waco High Yearbook in 1927 told a story. The yearbook writers wrote, To Wacoans there are two big things in Waco, the amicable building and Paul Tyson. <laughs> From 1921 to 1927, the Tigers won four state championships, broke 100 points in a game nine times, went 81-2-2, and the only two losses were in, cha- in state championship games. They w- had winning streaks of 21, 19, and 16 games. Goodness. The 1927 team accepted an offer to, to travel to Ohio and play a mythical high school national championship game against Cleveland's Latin Cathedral High School. National media attention for this game. Big build-up stories all week leading up to the, to the game. And the score? Latin Cathedral 12, Waco High 44. Oh, my. So, Paul Tyson, national story, right? You bet. Notre Dame coach Newt Rotney was said to have told friends that Tyson had the greatest football mind in the world. Rockne hired Tyson to coach the offense for the Fighting Irish in 1931. But Rockne died in a plane crash just a few days after Tyson had accepted the offer. Tyson took the next year off, and he came back to coach the Tigers here in Waco again in 32. Over his tenure at Waco High, he was offered a number of head coaching jobs with Southwest Conference Universities, But evidently, he never considered leaving Waco again. He coached at Waco High for 28 years, from 1913 to 1941. Werner, in that uh, 1999 profile he wrote in The Trib, ranked four of Tyson's Waco High teams among the Central Texas top ten of all time. The 1927 squad was first, and the 25, 22, and 26 teams were fourth, sixth, and seventh.
1: So I gather by the time he retired, Paul Tyson was a living legend.
0: Particularly around Central Texas. No, actually, he didn't retire. He was oh. fired. <laughs> fired? He wasn't winning enough. Yeah. He had accumulated a few enemies in town over the years. And he was the subject of a whisper campaign about his personal life. Seriously? After all he had accomplished? He was a kind of an odd duck. He never quite settled into the political games that were sort of expected. He was described as socially awkward, not really comfortable except when he was coaching. He lived at the YMCA, never married. The story was that his college sweetheart at TCU had run off and married another guy, Mm -hmm. leaving him torn to pieces, and he never really got over it. So to no one's surprise, when the opposing teams finally started to catch up with the system a little bit, Waco High slipped off the pedestal. There were people around to take shots at him. So Tyson demands that the school district do an investigation to determine whether there was any truth to this personal gossip that had been circulating about him. Various published reports over the years said he was cleared in that investigation, and players have consistently said over the years that they never saw any evidence of improper contact or anything that shouldn't have been happening. Anyway, in 1941, Paul Tyson was fired by the Waco school board when he refused to resign after an 8-2 season. Good grief. He took a job with Beaumont Beaumont High in 43, was there three years that didn't really ever work out for him, and he was coaching at Daniel Baker College in Brownwood when he died in 1950 at age 65. Paul Tyson's grave marker simply reads, Christian, teacher, coach.
1: What a sad ending to such an interesting story.
0: Yeah, the ending does strike a chord with the experience of a lot of people in the sport, and it wasn't really an ending, though. We need to remember Because Paul Tyson's players always said he helped form their character. You hear that from coaches. He worked with about 600 young men during his time at Waco High. And today their grandchildren and great-grandchildren, many of them, are still in Waco trying to live those values. Many of them know the story of Paul Tyson, the name on the stadium, and what kind of man he was.
1: Wow. Brad, we look forward to seeing you in the bleachers or maybe in the press box in the weeks ahead. Thanks. See you at the game. I'm Robert Darden, Associate Professor of Journalism, and thank you for joining us for another edition of Treasures of the Texas Collection. Located on the Baylor University campus, Texas Collection has one of the country's largest collections of Texas-related documents, books, letters, photographs, memoirs, maps, and more, including everything you'd ever want to know on Paul Tyson, the Masonic home of Mighty Mites, and the Texas High School Football. For more information, go to www.baylor.edu slash lib, L-I-B, slash Texas. Treasures of the Texas Collection was made possible by generous grants from the Wardlaw Fellowship Fund for Texas Studies and by Community Bank and Trust of Waco. This has been a production of KWBU 103.3 FM, public radio for Central Texas.